Welcome to Backstory Song. I'm your host, Doug Burke. Dickie Lee is a pop and country singer-songwriter who began his career in Memphis recording in the legendary Sun Studios during the birth of rock and roll. After writing and recording many early rock and roll and rockabilly songs, he migrated to Nashville where he focused on writing country hits. In Nashville, he found his home and has had over 30 chart-topping songs, including eight number ones, earning Dickie induction into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame in 1995. His songs have been recorded by music legends, including Elvis Presley, George Jones, George Strait, Reba McIntyre, Emmylou Harris, Anne Murray, Connie Francis, and many others. Welcome to Backstory Song. Today we have the pleasure of sitting with Dickie Lee, a Nashville 1995 Hall of Fame inductee. Dickie, it's an honor and a pleasure to have you here. Doug's good to be here. How are you doing? I am fantastic. And it really, I really mean that. I mean, you have written songs and performed from the birth of rock and roll through the age of modern country music to today and you're still performing and it's an amazing treat it's it's wonderful to have you here on backstory song well i'm getting pretty old and it's good to still be around here so why don't we start at the beginning dickie you know when did you start writing songs and why did you start writing songs oh wow well i probably started trying to write when i was in about the eighth grade the school i went to it was it went all the way from first grade to 12th grade when i was in the eighth grade there was a guy who was a senior there he was kind of Mr. Everything. He was star on a football team and he played guitar and he uh, would play his guitar sometimes on these assemblies on our Friday assemblies. And I thought, wow, man, I want to, I want to do what he does because he gets all the girls. So I, I, <laughs> I went out for football and I started taking a few guitar lessons. So that's, that's what got me started. I think getting the girls and losing the girls were a big theme in your songs that we're going to talk about, but your first chart success was She Thinks I Still Care? Yeah, as a songwriter, I kind of, it's really weird because I started off with probably the, the most successful song I've ever had as a songwriter. It started, uh, George Jones first recorded this song in 1963. And by 1975, I think we'd had about over 500 recordings on it. And it's recorded today. Yeah, Elvis Presley, Connie Francis, Leon Russell, Anne Murray. Changed it to He Thinks I Still Care. Yeah. Had a lot of greats on that one. Tell me about the backstory on that song. Well, you know, it's, it's really funny. that There was actually a real story to this song because there was a girl that I was really uh, fell in love with. I was crazy about her, and uh, she dumped me. So I wrote this song about her. But I'm really, I'm really thankful to her today. <laughs> It's a, a song of denial, right? <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, I, I know her today. You know, we're, we're friends. So uh, everything turned out really well. <laughs> you thank her for inspiring being the muse behind the song? I have in the past, yeah. Oh, that's great. You actually started with your own group, right? Early on in your career, you were with Alan and you're at the Sun Records recordings in the 50s. I mean, what was that like? I mean, that's like the beginning of rock and roll. 
Well, there was a disc jockey. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of him or not. I guess you probably have. Dewey Phillips, who's the first disc jockey that ever played Elvis. This was about 1957. He played the first Elvis record, and but then in 57, I went down to his studio. He was off from 9 to 12 at night, and I went down there one night and waited for him to get off, and I asked him if I could play a couple of songs for him, and he said, yeah, so I did. And he said, you know, those are pretty good songs. He said, uh, you got a band? I said, no, I don't. He said, why don't you put a band together, and when you do, you call me and come back, and I want to hear him with a band. So, you know, I got these guys together, and we, we practiced for a few months, and Alan, Alan Reynolds was one of the guys who, I, at the time, I went to what was then Memphis State University, and Alan went to Southwestern. It's now Rhodes College in Memphis. So I got these guys together, and then Alan got a couple of guys together over at Rhodes. He and a couple other guys sang background, and then I got a rhythm section together. We rehearsed, went back, played it for Dewey, and he loved it. So he recorded it right there, right there in the, it was WHBQ radio, right there in their studios. He got it on a little fly-by-night label It's called Tampa Records. Okay. It was a local hit. It was kind of a Mid-South hit, and it went all the way to number two on the, on the local Memphis charts, and it came out the same time that Elvis's All Shook Up came out, and we just followed him up the charts. He was always one slot ahead of us, and we never got to number one. He got to one, and we got to two. What was the name of that song? Uh, it's called Dream Boy. Hey, True Baby. It was kind of a two-sided hit. They played both hits, and, and I'd written both of the songs. You know, Elvis kept us from going number one, and but, but you know, the record was in the charts there for about 19 weeks. Because of that record, Dewey got me on Sun Records. Okay. So you met some of the legendary people at Sun Records? and I met, I met most all of them, yeah. What was that like? Sam Phillips and those guys? That was great. Yeah, Sam Phillips. And, and Elvis, when I got on Sun, he just left. He'd gone to RCA uh, the previous year or so. But there was, you know, Johnny Cash, uh, let's see, Charlie Rich, uh, Carl Perkins, Roy Orbison. All you guys hanging out in the Sun Studios. Yeah, yeah. And Alan Reynolds for our listeners went on to produce many of Garth Brooks's hits, right? All of them. Among other claims to <laughs> yeah. fame. <laughs> yeah. We came to Nashville together in about 1969 and we came up here to write. When I was at Sun Records, let me preface that. When I was at Sun Records, Jack Clement was my engineer and producer and he later left Sun and we got to really be good friends, Jack and, and Alan and myself. So when he went to Nashville, he got us to kind of hang along with him. He stayed in touch. See, about 1961, he moved to Beaumont, Texas. He met a guy named Bill Hall, who was the manager of, uh, oh, well, the Big Bopper, a couple other guys. And they went down there together in, in Beaumont and built a studio and got Alan and me to come down there. And that's where I recorded my first national hit, Patches. And that's kind of what got me started really going. And that was written by someone else. Barry Mann and Larry Colbert. They were New York writers. Right, right. And uh, you had Laurie's Strange Things Happen as well. Yeah. These sort of teenage tragedy songs. <laughs> well, it's funny, Doug, that the Laurie song, Alan and me and another guy, his name was Mitt Addington. He was a professor. He was a psychology professor at, at Memphis State. And we wrote together some. Alan and me didn't write this song, but... We were we had a little songwriting session one night. 
back in the back of his house, kind of his own little woodshed, you know, we'd hang out in. And I was a big Stephen King fan. And I read everything Stephen King wrote. And one night we were just talking about writing something. And I said, you know, what do you think it'd be like to have a ghost story on record? And we, we kind of kicked it around a little bit and uh, nothing happened. But about a month later, Mitt comes over to his house one night and he's written the song, Laurie. Make a long story short, you know, we played around. We eventually recorded it and it was a big record for us. Yeah, that and Patches was banned because of its suicide theme by the radio stations, but it sold over a million copies, which is... Well, when the record first came out, we were down in Beaumont, and this was uh, about 1960, 1962, 63. Uh, the record came out in the latter part of 61, I think, but nobody would play it because of the double suicide, and the record was out for about four months before it got any play at all, and Bill Hall, he got this disc jockey in Beaumont finally to start playing it. And as soon as he played it, the phones went wild. And from there, Houston got wind of it. When it started off, it kind of bounced around from city to city, but everybody, when they first start playing it, it just go crazy. You're writing these rock songs in this era. It's kind of your, fair to say, your pre-country era. Yeah. And your first sort of big charting song was I Saw Linda Yesterday. Tell me about this. You wrote this with Alan. Yeah. Alan and I wrote this song, and we were trying to write a, a George Jones had recorded, She Thinks I Still Care, and we were trying to write a song for him, trying to write a follow-up song for him, and we started this song called I Saw Her Yesterday. And then, you know, they were talking to us. They said, we need to get another record ready for you guys to follow Patches up with. You know, the way that song was, I, I didn't want to really get categorized, you know, as singing the, the death song, so I wanted to do something really up-tempo. We changed uh, I Saw Her Yesterday and I Saw Linda Yesterday and made it, a, you know, and picked a tempo up on it. You gave her a personification. You got the um, sort of dumb, diddly, dumb, diddly, can you do that for me? Dumb, diddly, dumb, diddly, dumb, diddly, dumb, dumb. Yeah. I know Gary U.S. Bonds had quarter to three in the charts around this time, a very similar what inspired that kind of sound? You know, we were just playing around with it. We were just having fun when we it started off. It was a ballad, and then we just started playing with it and picking up the tempo and just doing all kinds of crazy stuff. We'd sing these dumb diddly things. I mean, at first, not probably didn't even realize that would be a part of the song. We kind of liked what we were fooling around with, so we said, you know, let's let's see if we can do something with this thing. So this is about another broken-hearted guy, right? There's a lot of these broken-hearted guys in your songs here, right? But this is your first. This is kind of a happy, up-tempo, broken-hearted song. But there was no Linda in your life. My wife's name was Linda, but I married her later, and it had nothing to do with that name. It was just a coincidence. And when you met her, did she know you had written this song, I Saw Linda Yesterday, and said, hey, I'm your Linda? I actually met her before I wrote the song. We got married later on, but everybody thought I wrote the song for her, but I did, you know, and she knew I didn't too. Did you play the song at your wedding? (laughs) No, no. No? No? Okay. Another one of your songs that has had enormous legs, I don't even know if you know how, how strong the legs are on this song, but Ruby Baby was covered by Dion. Tell me about this. You know, I just, 
I always liked that song. Way before Dion cut it, I liked it. I would play around with it a lot and just sing it. I, I started messing around with it and kind of got a little different type feel on it. It was a fun song to sing. So I sang it a lot before I ever even thought about recording it. And then I thought, well, you know, let's, let's, let's record it. See what happens. Was there a Ruby you made up? Or just tell me about the song. Where, where did Ruby Baby come from? What inspired well, Ruby it? Baby, I'm, I'm trying to think of, uh, boy, I'm, you know, I should have been prepared for this, but it was a, a group. They were, I think they were on Atlantic Records way back, back in the, uh, four, in the early 50s, had the song Ruby Baby. Dion had a, he had a hit record on it. A few years after that, we did it. Did you know it was part of the Steely Dan repertoire because Donald Fagan put it on the Nightfly album? No, I did not know that. Yeah, you got to go look at that. All right. And, and listen to that. I, that's why I say this has had more legs than you even know about because it's so classic that people don't even you know recognize its origin. It's just become like part of musical vernacular, I think. Oh, I know, and and it's killing me. I can't think of the original artist. It was a it was a black group, you know, black quartet from the fifties. Yeah, uh-huh. it has that kind of duopy sound, right? Is that what yeah, classic Dion sound, you know? And did it go far for Dion? I don't remember. I think it was a pretty big record for him. I'm not sure exactly. I always loved Dion. I was kind of a Dion fan growing up too. But he was from New York. He was from a different place. But it, you know, yeah, it had a kind of a Memphis sound. At this point, would you say you sort of are this Memphis sound? I mean, because what I want to talk about is your song Memphis Beat, which I love. This is a really funny story. This is a song that Al and I and Mid Addington, the professor I was telling you about, we wrote this song, I think it was around 1966. Still living in Memphis, and Jerry Lee Lewis recorded it. He named his band the Memphis Beat. Wow. Actually, he put the song in an album. He, he didn't even have a single with it. He just put it in an album, named his band The Memphis Beat. After that, we, we kind of forgot about it. So fast forward all the way to about, oh, about 2015, which I'm talking, you know, we're talking 50, 60 years later. All of a sudden, I started getting royalties for Memphis Beat, you know, BMI royalties. And I was thinking, what's going on here? Because the royalties were pretty good. And I was thinking, who's? How did this happen? Who's playing this thing? And did somebody else recorded it? And I, you know, I checked it out, and and I finally found out there was a, a TV show that got started about that time. It's called Memphis Beat, and it was a cop show. And their background is kind of they use kind of southern rock music, and uh, Memphis Beat turned out to be the theme song for the TV show. I don't even know how they found it. I, I just figured maybe they went to the archives and found a song, you know, with the same title of their cop show so they liked it and they did it so that was pretty weird and and not only that about that same time they had a contest in memphis for the most popular song that had ever been written about memphis and you know there are a lot of them you like chuck berry's memphis and all and they picked the top 100 songs most favorite songs written about memphis and uh memphis beat came in number one wow that's a classic so it starts down the Mississippi where the water gets muddy. 44 school where the kids don't study. Yeah. 44 school. Where's that? I tried to look that up. I couldn't find it. 44 schools. So I don't know. I guess I figured out there about, you know, around 44 schools in Memphis. And none of the kids study there because there's too much music going on at the time. Is that? You know, that was kind of the thing, you know. 
No one likes to brag about studying in elementary and high school, right? Yeah, everybody was rocking and rolling down there. And then you say, riding on a Honda from Arizona, Houston, Boston, Kansas City, we got New Orleans and a do-what diddy. What's a do-what diddy? Beats me, but it sounded good. <laughs> it rhymed, huh? Right. <laughs> well, they talk about the Bo Diddley beat. Now, I was wondering if someone could tell me what that is. I know it when I hear it, but I just want to hear someone explain to me what it is. It's just kind of that dot, 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 dot. And that's the do a diddy. Is that the do a diddy too, or is that the do, is the do a diddy different than the Bo Diddley beat? <laughs> no, I would call that the Bo Diddley beat. That's been used in so many songs. Oh man, I know, I know. Jerry Lee's record, his wasn't quite. Mine was more of a, a Bo Diddley beat than his was. He, his was a little more straight, just rock and roll. And so Jerry Lee named his band after the song. Did he like include this in his? in his set list almost religiously? You know, I have no idea. No idea. I, I, I doubt it. I don't know. But uh, but he did name his band after that, you know, the Memphis Beat. So you started writing more in the country vein. I mean, Jack Clement is also in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, in fact, Jack, Jack Clement is in that Hall of Fame. He's also in the Country Music Hall of Fame. He was inducted about, oh, three or four years ago. Legend, of course. Let's talk about some of your country songs from this era. You want me to just throw names out? Sure, yeah. I've been around enough to know. You wrote this with Bob McDill. Bob is a guy that Alan and I met when we were down in Beaumont, Texas. We were down there from about 62 to 64. We stayed in a, uh, a hotel down there, and they had this little tap room down there, and people would come in and sing a lot. And Bob would come in. He had a little kind of a little folk group. Uh, and they were there on weekends. In fact, Janis Joplin used to hang out down there. That was just a, a, a little before me, but they said she would come in there and do her homework while she was listening to these bands play. We hit it off with Bob, got to be good friends. And then when, when Alan and I got moved up to Nashville by Jack, we got Bob to move too. We Actually, we, we moved from Beaumont to Memphis to Nashville. We got Bob to move up to Memphis and then... Jack got us to move on from Memphis to Nashville, and we got McDill to move on up there. And we said, man, come on, come on up here and we'll write some country songs. And McDill said, I, I can't write country songs. I don't know how to do that. But He was wrong. <laughs> oh, wow. He was, he was very wrong. So we all ended up in Nashville. Been there ever since. Thank goodness. So I've been around enough to know one of your songs you wrote with Bob. Yeah. Uh, another sort of song about a guy in denial. In oh, yeah. This is this song's got it's got a story. I guess all of them do. But we wrote this song. Uh, we wrote this song for a girl. We thought this was a girl song. When we wrote it, the publishing company gave it to a guy. There, there was a Cajun singer by the name of Joel Sonier. I don't know if you're familiar with him or yeah, not. Yeah, yeah. J O E L. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Joel yeah. He recorded the song. They put it out and. His record, it was. If you'd never heard it, you got to check it out. It, it was great, and he sang some bro, some Cajun French in the song. We thought it was going to be a smash, and it, it really didn't do very much. Bob and I love this song. We just thought it was a hit, and we pushed it around for years, you know, trying to get somebody to do it. And about uh, eight years after the Sonier record, a guy named John Snyder came in into our office one day in the publishing company, and. Uh, 
he had some moderate success with RCA. He was a pretty good singer. He wanted to go country. I mean, he he loved country. And he came in looking for stuff. And I wasn't even there that day he came in, but they were playing him songs and playing him for a while. And he didn't hear anything. He said, I'll tell you what he said, play me something that you would never even think of me doing. Just play me some songs that you guys like. And the guy uh, was running the publishing company at the time, Bob Kirsch, he, he pulls out, I've been around enough to know. He plays it for Snyder. And John says, man, I love that song. He records it. And when they put that song out, the, you know, this is kind of funny. You know, there are, a lot of, there are a lot of pop singers, like if their careers burn out or whatever, they try to sing country with the thinking of, well, I can't make it in pop. I'll, I'll just record country, which country disc jockeys didn't like that. And they think, you know, this is going to happen when John Snyder puts this country record out, as good as it is, they're not going to play it because they're going to have that attitude. So when they put the record out, it was old Warner Brothers. Instead of the writer's name, they just put a big question mark on all the DJ promotion copies. Uh-huh. So they wouldn't know it was a pop singer. And they, they started playing it. And, you know, it's like people went crazy in the song, uh, it got such play and started selling. And then, of course, after they started playing it, they found out who it was. But that song was actually in, in the singles charts for 58 weeks. Wow. And uh, wow. had a number one record with it. And But anyway, talk about a story of a song, you know, started out eight years ago with a record that didn't make it. And, and it culminates with uh, John recording it and having a smash with it. Well, I find it interesting. It was written with your intention of having a female vocalist do it, but yeah. you know, it's kind of better that it's uh, the guy who knows that the woman doesn't love him, but you know, really is begging for her to keep him in some ways. Is that kind of once he had a hit with it? It definitely sounded like a guy should do it. You know, what's <laughs> you can't think of a woman doing it now, right? Yeah. There's no personal experience on this one, right? You know, we just wrote it and thought we had a pretty good song. I really like the songs. I may jump around timeline-wise here, but in a different light. This is like the office fantasy. That's one of my favorite recordings of all time as far as any song I had anything to do with. The record itself was one of my favorites. It was produced by Doug Johnson and on Doug Stone. And the way this song originated was, at the time, there were Bob McDill and myself and another friend of ours, songwriter Bucky Jones. You know, we wrote a lot together. We wrote for Polygram at the time. And Polygram, we thought we had some of the best-looking women who worked in our office. We thought we had the best-looking women in town in our office. So one day I said, you know what? We ought to write an ode to the girls of Polygram. This is what it turned out to be in a different light. Yeah, and now in the hashtag Me Too era, this would get you in a lot of trouble, maybe. But oh, gosh. <laughs> I think it's okay, because, you know, I think a lot of people do meet their spouses at the office, even to this day. I mean, you have, in general, a lot in common. You're working in a company that... We were with a big company, but we had a small group, and it, it was like family there. You know, the writers and, and all the girls on the staff and everything, everybody was just crazy about everybody. It was just, It was just a fun thing. You know, they got a big kick out of it, too. Oh, the girls did because they knew it was about them? Yeah, yeah. That was a compilation of the girls at Polygram. <laughs> okay. <laughs> There's no one specific woman here to, that gets the attribution, huh? Oh, yeah. 
You're the first time I've thought about leaving. Yeah. Big song for you. Reba recorded it. Yeah, Reba recorded it. And uh, gosh, it was either her first or second number one record. That's when she had just started. And I wrote that with a buddy of mine, really good songwriter, Carrie Chater. We were just trying to write a song. This this is probably, as far as hit songs, this is probably the quickest ever written one because we wrote this song in two or three hours. And just to show you, you know, how smart I am, at the time, Reba, she was recording for Mercury Records and she was produced by a guy named Jerry Kennedy. When they were looking for songs for Reba, and I had another song, and I can't even think now what the song was, but I thought, boy, Reba's going to love this, so... You know, I, we sent it over to their office, but I thought, you know, we just wrote this song. You're the first time I've thought about leaving. I'm just going to stick this song on there, too. I don't I don't think anything will happen with it, but I'm going to stick it on there. And so, you know, they get back to us and say, hey, we love this song. You know, I think we're going to do it with Reba. And I said, oh, that's great. You're going to do so-and-so? And they said, no, we're doing You're the first time I've thought about leaving. I thought, oh. So anyway, that shows you how smart I am. This is uh, a song about someone thinking about having an affair. Yeah, it's one of the old one of the old cheating songs, you know. Cheating song, okay. I don't write songs like that anymore. Since I become a Christian, I quit writing cheating songs. Did you? <laughs> Christianity like drove the cheating song out of you. You can still write them, can't yeah, you? You know, it's, it's just it is. It's a slice of life, you know. It's not like you're promoting it. It's just it happens. You go from writing teenage tragedies to cheating songs. Here's one. Let's fall to pieces together, George Strait. Yeah, that was. Uh, do you remember uh, Johnny Russell? He was a country singer. He was a Grand Ole Opry star. He's a good friend of mine and a guy named Tommy Rocco. And we wrote that song, and uh, George Strait did that one. I remember said, "Let's just write a really down home country song." This just came out. I said, "Pardon me, you left your tears on the jukebox." I thought, wow. That's crazy. Let's try to do something with that. So we did, and George Strait later recorded it. I like this because this is a rebound love song. This is not a breakup. I mean, it's about two broken hearts who meet crying over the jukebox. Right, yeah. See, I was a, even I started my career as a rock and roll singer. I, I grew up, I loved country. I was a hillbilly way back, but I was really influenced by Elvis at the time. And, uh, you know, that kind of, Got me away from country a little bit as far as what I was doing and what I was writing until I got back to Nashville and started writing these songs. But country songs, even the sad songs, they're just fun. You know, they're fun. Tell me about the musical part of your country songwriting. I mean, we've been talking about the lyrics, but, you know, you're quite a performer. And how does, like, some of the melodies come to you? I and pretty much everybody that I write with, we never wrote the lyric and then try to put a melody to it or vice versa. We just start strumming around with our guitars and singing lines, you know, and getting something we liked and go from there. But it, but the melody and, and the lyrics, they would evolve together, you know. Interesting. Yeah. A lot of people don't write like that. A lot of people, they will write the lyric and then they'll put a melody to it or vice versa. But I never, I never did that. Yeah. In my conversations, I have learned that there's almost no rule for that. Almost no rule by song. Some people have a methodology that they do use that works for them almost in an intuitive, inspirational way. Sometimes I would, you know, I'd be writing and I'd always keep my door shut because if people heard me, they think I was crazy. You know, I just sing all these crazy kind of melodies with crazy kinds of words and everything else. 
I always kept my door shut. I like some of your um, other more love songs that I'll Be Leaving Alone, Charlie Pride. Well, that one's got a story. A buddy of mine, Waylon Holyfield, who's a Hall of Fame songwriter, we wrote that song. We wrote that over at my house. Gosh, it took us, we spent a few days on it, I guess, but we were trying to finish it up one night and we were drinking wine and, and trying to finish this song up. And I remember I had a little bar in my office. We were writing, using the bar as a counter and we were both just dead tired and we were one line away. We were trying to finish it up. This was probably about two o'clock in the morning. All of a sudden, Waylon said, I got it. I got it. I said, great, great. So he's got his head in his hands, kind of like he's really thinking. And all of a sudden, I'm waiting for this great line. And all of a sudden, I hear. (laughs) (laughs) Did finally finish it. And then, you know, we both recorded for RCA. And Charlie uh, and his wife were really good friends of mine. So uh, I got the song to him. Charlie said, you know, they like it at RCA, but it's going to be an album cut, though. And back then, you know, it completely turned over time. Like back in those days, you wanted a single. That's where all the money was, you know, albums. And then later on, it was just vice versa. But Charlie said, well, he said it's going to be in the album. And this is a true love song. This is a true love song. This is about avoiding infidelity. Exactly. Anti-cheaters song. Yeah. So anyway, where Charlie's from in there is like from Dallas, where he really is from. Well, the song was, we used Tulsa. And Charlie's wife, Rosine, she said, Dickie, she said, I want that word changed. I want that town changed from Tulsa to Dallas. She said, said, you do that, we'll we'll make it a single. I said, okay, Rosine, whatever you say. So anyway, I I get a call from Charlie one morning about 7 or 8 o'clock, and he says, Yes, I'll buy you a drink. He says, going to be a single, baby. (laughs) I said, awesome, you know. So anyway, that's a great way to wake up. I like this song's chorus, and it's similar to She Thinks I Still Care in that it's a one-line chorus. I'll be leaving alone. That that's it. Like that's the chorus. Oh, pretty right? much. The, yeah. Pretty the much. hook line is the chorus. It's yeah. like there's nothing else that needs to be said. Yeah. Like, yeah. You know. That's true. It was also a fun song to write. So I mean, you don't seem to like be focused on a verse verse chorus structure. You know, back then they would it would be like verse verse bridge verse or verse chorus verse chorus and I didn't give too much thought to those things until we actually got an idea first and played around musically with it a little bit. And sometimes it'll just kind of, it'll kind of take you there. You know, it it just kind of, rather than try to plan it out before you do anything, if you just kind of follow what's coming out of your mouth in your head, it'll, it'll just kind of take you where it needs to go. At least that's kind of the way I, I worked. And most of the guys with me did the same. And how do you know when the song is done, Dickie? (laughs) <laughs> that's, you know, that I've always been kidded by my guys. They say, you can never finish a song. They're putting me down. They said, you never can finish it. They said, even when we finished it, even when the song's been released, you're still trying to write the song. I guess, well, you know, if we, you got a verse and a chorus and a verse and a chorus, I guess that's, that's enough. <laughs> you need a bridge in there and then another chorus and you're done. Yeah, that's a good question. Well, I think every song is different. So it's not fair to say, you know, you know, a song is done when you do X, Y, and Z. It sort of depends on the song. I think you just feel like, well, you know, there's nothing else to say. Well, here's a story song that you wrote. The Door is Always Open, recorded by Dave and Sugar and Waylon Jennings and 
You know, there was a song that uh, Bob McDill and I wrote. That was David Sugar's second, second number one record. There was no real story to that. You know, we just wrote it. And I was at RCA as an artist at the same time. So it was kind of easy to get to the artist over there. You didn't have to go through a whole lot of stuff. We gave it to, uh, gave it to Jerry Bradley, who was recording David Sugar at the time. And, you know, they liked it, recorded it and had a really big record with it. You wouldn't call it a cheating song, but... No, it's not. It's, <laughs> it's a, But it is an open door invitation, I guess, to cheat. You know, if you ever get tired of your yeah, stuff. Yeah, right. right. I, I find the Dave and Sugar version very different than the Whalen version because you know, they got the male and female parts in their version. Yeah, it kind of made it almost kind of a different song, a whole different feeling. Jamie Johnson also did it. I think he heard Whalen's version. That's what got him to do the song. I know he was a big fan of Whalen's. We've had a few cuts on it. Some of them, I can't even remember who did it, but those were the big ones. But the Dave and Sugar record was by far the, as far as sales, that was the big record. Did you have number one parties back then? Did you have a number one party on these things? Yeah, the, the companies would have them. You know, like RCA, if their artist had a number one record, they might have a number one party. And then like BMI and ASCAP, if they had a song that was a number one, they would have parties. So there were parties around Nashville all the time. Do you remember your first number one party? I really don't. I can't. I've been to three or four of them. Uh, Must have been good parties. Well, my first, you know, my first number one was George Jones, and there was no number one party then. You know, that was they didn't do them back then, huh? But they always, you know, Nashville looks for an excuse to have a party. So yeah, it sure does. It's like twenty four hours there these days. <laughs> party never stops. You go on Broadway, it's crazy. Boy, you're not kidding. Everybody's reaching out for someone. The Cox family. Even before the Cox family, there was a girl by the name of Pat Daisy, brand new artist. She, I guess she was in her early 20s, really pretty girl. They were trying to get her started. Well, she was the first one to record the song, and she had a big hit with it. What's funny, she told RCA after she had this record, she quit the business. She had a she had a small child, and she said, you know, this music business is keeping me away from my, from my little boy. And uh I want to raise him. I want to be there to raise him. So she actually, you know, and you got to admire somebody that does that. You know, she quit the business, probably a pretty lucrative business it would have been for her too, but she did quit it, stayed home. And she was really, really a sweet girl. And, uh, but anyway, then uh, the Cox family did it. And that's, that's a great story too. Cause the Cox family, I didn't, I didn't know any of them, but they were, I love that group, kind of a gospel group. Alison Krauss produced this album on them. And the title of the album was Everybody's Reaching Out for Someone. It got Bluegrass Album of the Year. And when you heard that version, were you like, wow? Is that, I mean, they took your song in a different direction. You and Alan wrote this, Alan Reynolds, right? Yeah, I, and I, I love it. That's one of my favorite records that I had anything to do with. What's it like when you a lot of your songs you've written and performed as your own artist, and then you hear someone reinterpret them? Like, what's your favorite version where you heard it you're like wow I, really, I almost like that better than my own version yeah there have been some i, I like all of them better than my versions <laughs> when i hear them but uh it's really great there's something you never get over when when somebody records your song and it really comes off well and you hear it for the first time you know it's just like every day is christmas it's just like magic i have been so lucky to have had so many really great recordings on some of my songs you never get over that thrill when you hear your song for the first time sung by somebody else when it's really good. Well, tell me about some of those thrills. I mean, you don't have to rank them and say this was the best one, but but tell me some of the ones that you really love the version that they did. 
Oh, God. Well, you know, like like I tell you, the one that just flat knocked me out was Tracy Bird's Keeper of the Stars. Well, that, let's talk about that to finish, because that it was the last song I really wanted to cover. This is a great love song, Dickie. I mean, this is a really all-time great love song. That's really funny, because it was kind of like when we wrote the song for George Strait. A friend of mine, Danny Mayo, who was a writer on this, he, he died a few years ago, but... Uh, he came over to my house one night. He said, I got this title. I don't know what to do with it, but I love the title. And I said, what is it? He said, The Keeper of the Stars. And I said, wow. And, you know, Doug, when he said it, I said, I don't I don't know how these little things pop out, but I said, it was no accident, me finding you. It came right to you. He said The Keeper of the Stars. And that line, the opening line of the song came to you. Yeah. Just like that. Yeah. When he said it, I bet it wasn't a minute didn't go by that I just that I just said that we got stuck. We were having problems with the course, and and Danny got uh, this friend of his, Karen Staley, good songwriter. She came in and and she she wrote the chorus practically, and just kind of saved us, saved us in the song. She really completed it and made it made it a great song. So anyway, and the, you know, I remember you asked me one time. You said, "Are there any songs you have that you would love to, if you could get somebody to record one today?" You know, what would what would want to be the songs? I'd love to get a great pop cut on Keeper of the Stars. Oh, yeah. Like like who? Like which pop star's voice would you want on that? Oh, man, I don't know. Like, I mean, well, this is, there's so many. Uh, golly, there's just so many great pop stars. And I, I don't keep up with music as well as I used to. I mean, we're going back now like 20 years, but, uh, you know, like a Michael Bolton type thing. Or, or like even a Michael Bublé, or I could even see like a Christina Aguilera type, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. a Gwen Stefani. She's there in Nashville. Maybe you can get in front of Gwen to do, <laughs> or get Gwen and Blake to do it together, you know. But I, I just think it could be a great pop record because I, I, I agree. I think the material, I, I think it's, you know, like it's timeless, you know, that, that lyric go forever. I personally think it's a lot harder than most people think to write a great love song, but here you've done it. Tell me about that. I mean, am I right or wrong? Or what inspires a great love song? You're right. You know, I think it's just the way you think. I mean, I'm a romanticist anyway, you know, I even love some of the old Hallmark movies, man. But here's the thing. Like every time you write a song like that, for me anyway, I go through this little terror thing. I'm thinking, I don't know where that came from. You know, God must have given it to me, and I'm afraid I'll never be able to write anything else like that again. You know, I always go through a little terror period. But you get, you kind of get through it. Well, you've written a great love song. You've written so many great hits over the years uh, of all kinds of stories from the original rock era of Sun Records in Memphis to Nashville. We're grateful to have you still performing, Dickie. Are, are you going to be touring once this coronavirus ends and we're allowed to get out on the road again i hope so i've had, I've had uh, the last uh i've had four four weeks of uh of uh tours canceled i mean four shows canceled this month in july they don't they say that don't think of it as a cancellation we're just postponing it so i don't know but i've got one show that i just got booked that's it's the first week of december i think in gonzalez texas okay that's my that's my next show that i know about We'll see what happens. I want to thank you for coming on Backstory Song. And I want to thank our recording engineer, DJ Wyatt, in the booth. 
our social media director, Cameron Grace, and all you people who are following us on Twitter and Instagram. And thank you to our listeners here on Backstory Song. And thank you, especially Nashville Songwriter Hall of Fame writer, Dickie Lee. Well, hey, Doug, I want to thank you for having me on. I hope I did okay. You did great. Keep writing songs and keep playing. We'll get to see you in Gonzales, hopefully in December. I'll be out there until I fall over dead and say hi to your listeners for me. <laughs>